we've been the heroes of a tremendous energy story for a very long time. We can be the heroes of the future story of energy, but we're going to need to make some changes to do that. And digital is clearly one of the major tools that helps the industry change and transform. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. Before getting into it, I wanted to please ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review on iTunes. And of course, let me read this week's five-star review. Great. This was so good. I listened twice and I feel silly. I thought Amazon was just a brown box delivery company. Surprise. Thanks, Raminator300, for leaving a review. So I'm sitting this here this afternoon with my guest, Jeffrey Can. He's a trainer, podcaster, speaker, and author of Bits, Bites, and Barrels, and is also on the board of directors for Adapsity. So Jeff, how did you get started in the oil and gas industry? Uh, it goes back to finishing my first degree at McGill University and in 1984. And you're in Canada, right? I am, yes. I'm based outside Vancouver, though I spend obviously the vast majority of my time in Calgary with the Canadian oil industry. Oh, and I love Calgary. It's so beautiful out there. I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. If you like Denver and you know, the height, the altitude, the dry air, the clarity of the sky, the big, you know, big sky country, lots of sunshine, you'd love Calgary. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah lots yeah. of pluses. But yeah, I started with Imperial Oil in, in 1984. And at that time, if you're old enough, you'll remember there, there was a oil price crash, 1982, 83. Yeah. And in a big recession. So I joined Imperial Oil in 1984 and, and then stayed there through three years, 1987. Doing exactly what? Precisely. I was working in corporate, so supporting corporate activities, principally petroleum and product marketing and support of, at the time, computer systems and technologies used to run the bulk of the business, the commercial side of the business. So not upstream with production and field and so and the, and the like, but you know, commercial side. So I spent several months in the refinery complex in Sarnia, for instance, but most of the time was in Toronto when Imperial Oil's offices were, were located there. Okay. That took me to... Imperial Oil said to me, there's not much of a future, actually, if you don't have an engineering degree in oil. And now that's not true now, of course, but right. if you go back yeah. to, into the 80s, that was, was absolutely the position of the industry. The message was clear. You can't be counted on to take a leadership role in running one of our assets because you simply lack the educational background to know when you're, how these, these plants operate. And so I took myself back to university to get an MBA and then joined what was at the time Touche Ross, which merged shortly thereafter to become Deloitte. And I stayed there for 29 years. Oh, wow. Yep. Yep. One of the few. The turnover rate in that industry is very high intentionally. Right. It's the constant refresh of, you know, talent into the consulting industry is what keeps it at the edge. But to stay there that long is, is still a pretty lengthy career. That took me around the world 
including stints in Hong Kong, where I worked on the opening up of the Hong Kong-China marketplace. If you may remember back in the when Deng Xiaoping took over from Chairman Mao, <laughs> this is going way back. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I moved to Hong Kong and spent a great deal of time in China working on Chinese consulting opportunities as China was opening up ahead of the Hong Kong-China handover in 1997. And then moved back to Canada to Calgary and stayed there for several years, then transferred out to St. John, New Brunswick, to work with the Irving Oil business. At that time, the family was transitioning generations, and the new leadership wanted to do things differently, and that meant a significant overhaul of the business. So I spent several years doing that, then moved back out to Calgary. This was in 2006 to work in the repositioning of Deloitte's business back then to focus on, on the oil and gas industry. And during the big downturn in 2008, 2009, I took over the consulting practice in Calgary and unfortunately had to live through that huge downturn that everyone, we, we well, know. It sounds like you've been, you've been through a couple of them, it <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> I, I didn't mention, but I was also in Asia for the, what was called the Asian flu, oh. which was in 1997. You may that remember. That right. Yep, yeah. 1997, 1998, the Asian tigers reset their economies. The bot, which was the, the Thai currency peg, which was, it was tied to the US dollar. They pulled the peg. The bot promptly collapsed. This pushed all kinds of businesses into bankruptcy. And I was part of a team that went over to try and rescue some of the 55, 56 financial institutions that crashed. So, yeah, that sounds so familiar, huh? <laughs> <laughs> when you look back at it, you know, you realize the economy goes through these great sweeping arcs of change from time to time. And we're right in the middle of, of obviously a really big one. Well, right. Yeah. But yeah, it's not the first, won't be the last. Yeah. Exactly. Will not be the last. Will it's not just be the better. last. No, we just have to prepare better. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, given that you've been through downturns and we've established where you started, mm. what are some really big challenges personally for you and business alike and issues that you faced during all that time? Well, you know, I, I took some great lessons from people over the years, but one that's really stuck with me was to, if you take a job on in life, you should always have an eye to the job that that's really preparing you for. So in other words, you plan two steps out. Right. So taking the job to, I didn't mention this, but in one of my, one of my shifts, I moved to Australia to look after the Deloitte's liquefied natural gas consulting business unit based in Brisbane. My real plan was actually to work in the Canadian LNG sector because the Canadian LNG sector would follow after the Australian sector. The Australians were much further ahead. But to really get a career in that industry, you know, you needed some grounding. And so I, I moved family, lock, stock, and barrel to Australia. Not because I wanted to live in Australia necessarily. It's a great place though. <laughs> would, would go back in a heartbeat. But because I really had my eye on a project work in, in Canada in the liquefied natural gas industry there. And so planning two steps ahead. Always, always key. They didn't work, which means, you know, you have to be prepared to pivot. So one of my pivots, when I came back to Canada after working in Australia, the Canadian natural gas sector really didn't have an LNG playbook established. There were a whole series of projects on the planning stages, but none of them were going to come to fruition anytime soon. And if you kind of look at Canada's situation today, there's only one LNG project out of the 25 or so that were floated. My game, game plan, which was to you know be working in that industry, obviously didn't work. 
Right. And so you have to pivot. And that, I think, is one of the key things that, you know, you have to recognize in oil and gas is when to pivot. I moved into the gas industry because I saw the future of gas rising relative to coal. And then I moved to Australia to get ahead of the Canadian LNG wave. Now, once I was in Australia, I began to realize, oh, there is this thing called digital going on. And I got got interested in that. And when I came back to Canada and there's no LNG industry, I was able to quickly pivot my career and focus on digital in oil and gas, which is a, I think is a much longer stride play. You got to know when to, when to recognize, you got to know when to pivot and when to, when to move. And all of that's just, you know, learning from your mistakes and failures and quite right. Moving forward. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about what you're doing now. So you, you train, you have a podcast, you speak. What, yes. What's all that about? Well, as I see the world, there's ample supply of what I call digital innovation. Individuals with great ideas about how digital can make an impact on the world. But what's missing is the demand. The oil and gas industry is not demanding those changes and innovations to be brought into the industry. There's a gap. And the gap as I see it is that the oil and gas industry doesn't have a clarity of understanding of how digital technologies can make an impact on the industry. So my goal, I see my life, my passion now and, and where I take spend my time is creating that demand pull. And that demand pull starts with writing about it, speaking about it, training on it. And so that's where I spend my time. So the podcast and weekly article series I write, explore every week, some nuance or some dimension of how digital will affect the oil and gas industry. The book is a much more elaborated discussion of not just what digital is, how it will affect various segments of the industry, but what are the management challenges companies are going to have to address to be able to take these digital innovations and bring them on board. You know, that's a, as I say, it's a difference between doing or buying digital and versus being digital. It's a big, there's a big difference. What is the difference? Can you go a little further into that? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, oil and gas is an industry is very, very keen to purchase things. It's very easy to say, hey, I want to, I want to buy Zoom and use it in my company. That's buying digital. Being digital means how do you change the way you work so that your pace of working is much more aligned with how digital technologies themselves change. So for instance, oil and gas works on a, what I call a waterfall method of decision-making. You do enough work, you reach a critical decision point, and then you go over the waterfall to the next exploration and, and detailed breakout of, of the topic you're working on. And then once you're done that, you push it over the wall to the next level, next decision-making. So things cascade themselves down this waterfall. Digital doesn't work that way. What digital does is we say, all right, within this, say, 90-day period, you're going to have an outcome of some kind. We don't know what it is, but whatever you're doing will absolutely change within 90 days. And so we aim for a minimally viable solution. And we know that we're going to evolve it over time and then another 90 days and another 90 days and another 90 days. In other words, we box scope by time, not by features or functions that have to be delivered. This is a fundamental shift between how oil and gas people think and how digital people think. And it shows up in the valuations. The top five largest companies in the world by value now are all digital companies. And the oil and gas companies have all fallen out of the top 10, top 15 companies in the world. Interesting. Yep. It's a big change. So that's why I say it's about being versus doing. 
And being digital means culture change. It means attitude change. It means changing how you're organized, how you think, how you reward behaviors, what's important. That is a far harder change for oil and gas companies than just going off and saying, well, I'll go buy some technology and I'll be done. Well, it's just saying oil and gas and change in the same sentence that just kind of gives me a little chuckle <laughs> because we're so, our industries <laughs> love to adapt to things so quickly. Yeah. But I'd, I'd also say that as a society, you know, we're, we're incredibly grateful that oil and gas professionals introduce change cautiously carefully and with respect because when they do it wrong, bad things happen. So we actually place as a society a high level of respect and high expectation of that, hence all the regulations. But the consequence is the industry changes more on a more on a geologic timeline than it does on a on a clock timeline. Exactly. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience based off of your experience and what would it be? <laughs> one piece of advice with respect to the career or the oil and gas industry, the pandemic. <laughs> a little bit of everything. I know, right? It's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> well, there's a narrative out there right now that says that the future of oil is in and gas are limited and in decline. And that's just not true. It's inaccurate. There are still 1.2 billion cars on the road. They all use gasoline. There are 300,000 heavy haulers, 53,000 merchant ships and military ships, cruisers, 30,000 aircraft. They all use petroleum. They're all idle. They all want to be put to work, though. They only make money when they work. And the owners and investors in those assets, they don't want to write them off yet. And there isn't even money to buy them out. Even if you want it, you can't buy them out. It's too, too expensive. So there's clearly demand for this product. But on the other hand, society is also being very, very clear. The time of complacency and excuses around how this the petroleum industry, its emissions and, and the like, climate change, society is clearly signaling, at least you know, in many parts of the world, Europe certainly, that the industry needs to change. It is my view, the people who are in the industry are best positioned to lead our energy systems of the future. But we need to make some changes for that to be true. So my piece of advice to people who are in the energy industry is <laughs> they, you are, we've been the heroes of a tremendous energy story for a very long time. We can be the heroes of the future story of energy, but we're going to need to make some changes to do that. And digital is clearly one of the major tools that helps the industry change and transform. So that would be my piece of advice. That's a great piece of advice. It's happening very fast. We are potentially the future heroes of the next generation of energy. Why would we not step up? That's like my, that. my piece of advice. That's pretty profound. So being an author, mm. what book influenced you the most and why? What book influenced me the most? I'm just sort of staring at my wall of books right now. <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> yeah, I can't see the titles too closely. Which one? I think the most recent one, which was very influential, would have been The Digital Vortex, which is a book by some authors from Cisco and INSEAD in Europe, who looked at how various industries have reacted to the wave of digital change that's coming at them, and then forecast different tactics that companies could use to survive digital when it gets to their industry. 
So that was a real eye-opener, a really, really good book. And I referenced that to people frequently to say, hey, if you're looking for a thoughtful, non-industry-specific view, but a more abstract view, that's a very good one. Other books, Harvard Negotiating Project, the number of times they help people negotiate. <laughs> pull it back to how those sort of philosophy is very, very good. And gosh, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. I quote The Art of War regularly. I find it's a great parenting book, actually. <laughs> One of his quotes was, you know, take a distant view of things up close and take a close-up view of things distant. In other words, things that are right in front of you project what the consequences are if they are allowed to continue forever. And similarly, what do you see out on the horizon that's coming at you? Bring it right in front of you today and then say, what would you do differently right now if you knew that that was coming? And I find that it's a really, really interesting way to question, to ask and answer any company at any time, but very important. Yeah, that's a really parent. good question. Yeah. yeah. As a parent, <laughs> really good. Oh, yeah. 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 I'll have to agree <laughs> with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Do you let your child sleep in your bed with you? Right? Oh, when, no. When, well, exactly. But lots of parents <laughs> do. And they don't, they don't take a distant view of that right in the moment decision. Well, I mean, it's just a little awkward because mine are 20 and 18. So. <laughs> Yeah, mine are in their <laughs> 20s as well. So, yeah. but yeah, do you eat your vegetables or not? Do you adapt your household diet to suit the finicky needs of children? And what what are the consequences of that if you make that decision? So, yeah, and everybody's really learning that right now. Right now, absolutely. In lockdown. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. What is your most used business tool? Most used business tool. Hmm. It would probably be. Still, it's still probably email, actually, as a sort of a principal communication device. But after that, I'd have to say the Google suite of collaboration tools. Okay. Google Hangouts, Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets. I spent most of my life in, in industry working on the Microsoft tool set. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. You spend a lot of time with that. <laughs> you do. And I think, you know, you can't get away from those even if you might want to because the reality is the rest of the world is still pretty hooked on on those tools. Mm -hmm. Well, that and the security of it all too, I believe. Yeah. And reliable works. You don't have to, you don't question it. But I've noticed when I set up my own business, having left a big industry, a big company, that we needed tools immediately to, to bring the business to life. And we landed on the Google set because the collaborations were already built, single document, multiple editors. We could implement a paperless business overnight. So that's true. Yeah. Very grateful for those. Yay. And then after that, you know, I'm not sure I could go anywhere without, in fact, the, the book was written on a iPad. So. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yep. That's actually how I do all my show notes. So Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looking at my iPad right now. <laughs> yeah. If you looked at short of hours per day per technology, the iPad far and away, eight to nine hours a day. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to take with you wherever you are if you want to sit on your back porch and enjoy yep. the weather. Yep. Everything. It's just so compact and easy. Yeah. Yep. Completely agree. In fact, I would might even might say scratch the Google thing. <laughs> say the iPad. But because it's a newspaper, it's my video consuming device. It's my production utility workbench. It's where I build everything. You know, I might I might fiddle with PowerPoint with a mouse on the Mac, but the base, the guts of it is going to be built on the iPad first. Oh yeah. I don't really care for my I mean I use it, but I don't really care for my Mac. Hmm. I'd rather just use my iPad. It's just it's yeah. so easy to navigate. 
versus having to revert back to that. I, I agree. I think Apple's not wrong in when they said there are two operating systems lurking here and we need to give the iPad its own version, its own operating system. I think they would, that was quite a smart move. It, it literally... You can see it. It's one of the, it's back to the Sun Tzu, take a distant view of things up close. The iPad, you can easily see that sometime in the future becoming your sole device where you no longer have a laptop and it's, right. it's not that far off. Yeah, yeah. The laptops are too heavy anyway. I <laughs> <laughs> sound weak. Well, <laughs> maybe, but you know what? Like what we don't know yet is what's going to be our travel experience six months from now. Oh man, I know. I can't wait, but I'm so, I'm going to let everybody else breathe the air first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the way airlines bring their business models back to life is going to have a significant bearing on what technology I drag with me. And if it's difficult, you know, limited to no in-cabin baggage, which might be one of their rules, then the iPad is going to be, it'll occupy a place of privilege. The laptop probably gets left behind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've Who been knows? doing that for a couple of years now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just easier. And that way I don't have to carry both. And I have, you know, compact and easy to, I can stick it in my purse. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I get it. Yeah. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? Do you have a competitor? Well, I'd like to think I don't. I've, I've always believed in life, you know, that your key is to establish your, be in a class of one and have something which is complete in, in being sufficiently unique. When I put the book together with Rachel uh, Goyden, my co-author, we did a quick survey of the industrial market for books about the oil and gas industry and digital. And what we discovered was you could buy books or courses that would give you digital in the upstream. You could find books that gave you digital in the downstream. What you couldn't find was books that gave you digital for oil and gas. That was unique. And very, very few publications were independent. They were either paid for and financed by large consulting firms or technology companies trying to sell something or engineering houses. And so we concluded pretty quickly a book that addressed the impact of digital in the oil and gas industry that was unencumbered by an an investor with a specific agenda would be a unique product. And it still is. It's been picked up, for instance, by a Russian book publisher who wants to get it translated into Russian. Get it over into oh, the that's Russian cool. marketplace. Yeah, exactly. And once that cracks open, you know, then Spanish, French, Arabic can't be far behind. Like once you've picked up yeah. four or five key languages, you've got 90% of the oil world covered. Yeah, you really do. So, that's awesome. So to the question, who's the competitor? I think there's lots of people who can speak to about the future in oil and gas. I think there's people who can talk about or comment on the rise of digital in industry, but there's very, very few who you know, can take those two worlds, bring them together independently of any vested interests and can paint a a story and a picture of what the future could look like for this industry. So, you know, not to be, it's a great question, but I, I don't see a direct head to head, read my book or read your book. Like I don't, I don't, that doesn't exist. <laughs> How about you read everybody's books? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. exist. This is one, right. one and only one. Yeah. Great. So, and then this kind of goes back to what you were speaking of earlier. What is your most important lesson learned? Most important life lesson learned? Well, I still think it's back to the know when to pivot and know when you need to make a shift. Think two steps ahead. I think if you'd said to me, you know, three years ago, four years ago, you're going to write and publish a book, I'd be like, no, 
That's not going to happen. <laughs> Where did you get that idea? Guess what? I shouldn't say it's not that hard, but one should not be afraid to say, you know what? I'm going to set a goal for myself and that's what the goal is going to be. And if you break it down into small enough pieces, it's very achievable. So the book, as an example, was written first as a series of weekly articles on my blog series. And once really? I had, yeah, almost every word was already published on the blog. It just wasn't put into a structured, logical, consumable fashion where it was a book. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you break it down into, you know, could you write 200 words a day on a, where you get, <laughs> most no. of us would go, yeah, probably. It's like a half page. Could you write yeah. half a page a day on some topic? Well, if you did that for a year, you'd have a book. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. But you just vocalized it first and then right. it yeah. was already there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There's another another fun thing I've learned, right? If you, a lot of people do this, they'll put a, do a PowerPoint presentation and then they will stand up and present their concepts or their ideas. They will not have written out what they're going to say in advance. They will wing it, if you like. And if you record what you've said, and then you push that through a voice-to-text translation engine like Otter, mm-hmm. now you've got a transcript. You can then edit the transcript and then tune it and then present it. That's how I've tackled the online training course that I've built, which was to first record it off the cuff take the text and then edit the text so that it sounds much more professional and then re-record it as a training course. And it turned out to be 65,000 words in total done in a little over a week. No, so most of us talk a book a week. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? It's just not done in a way that is book worthy. But for people out there who are you know, wondering, do I have a book in me? Do you have a series of presentations or lectures that you could deliver on a specific topic where you are an expert in your field? And if the answer to that is yes, think about, you know, recording what you're presenting them, record them, translate it to text, then edit the text. You might actually have the starting point of a publication. I know some people that could probably write two books a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was laughing. I was like, I know a couple of people that I mean, I can write a book. But I know some people <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. who, could, who could speak a book a week, <laughs> talk a book a week. Oh, <laughs> that's great. So why is your role now important to the future of oil and gas? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the problem in the industry as I see it is a shortage of demand for change. And there are not enough voices out there poking and provoking the industry to change where those voices don't have a vested interest in getting the industry to change. So now not to put too fine a point on it, but if you're a technology company and you're telling an oil and gas company to change and then buy your technology, guess what? Your advice is tainted because you're selling something. Why it's important for me is that I'm, I'm not selling anything. I, all I do is speak to the truth about it. And there's no, there's no upside. Like I don't, I don't get paid by, you know, see if you, if you bought this company's gear or that company's cloud, so I don't, I don't get paid. What I see is the industry needs to change. And so I do what I do because the industry needs the encouragement, the voices that say, look, I've worked in this industry a long time. This is achievable. It's not inachievable. It's not a moonshot. It's completely achievable. What's your favorite podcast? 
since you're a podcaster <laughs> as well. I mean, come on, kind of jack it all which trades ones, over here. <laughs> which ones do I listen to? I listen to a lot. Let me get my phone here. Tell you which ones like that's the easiest want. way to do it. It's true. And, and plus that's a little closer than your bookshelf, right? <laughs> that's very true. So in terms of the industry, I listen to Arc Energy Ideas. This is a podcast out of Calgary by Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest. That sounds familiar. Yeah. They interview industry insiders and dig into topics about the industry, supply and demand. I listen to a lot of news podcasts. So I listen to the Global News Podcast from the BBC, as well as the BBC Six O'Clock News. New Yorker Radio Hour is one that I listen to. Let's see. Planet Money is one. Unchained by Laura Shin. So this is a blockchain podcast. Okay. Yeah. So it's quite a quite a range. And then I've listened to, you know, there's a comedy shows and- I, I love the comedy it. ones. There's, there's yeah. comedy galore. And that's kind of what's kept me sane during this lockdown. <laughs> yeah. There's no shortage. If you're stuck for entertainment right now- you got a problem. <laughs> There's way too much. Way too you much. You get another job. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. I just look at the podcast now and go, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be able to listen to them all. What am I going to do? Right. Yeah. So many. Millions now. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining me, Jeff. People want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your company. How can they go about doing that? There's so many ways to reach me, but I'll give you a spelling of my name. It's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-A-N-N. And so that's my Twitter handle, at Jeffrey Can. My website's jeffreycan.com. My email address is jeff at jeffreycan.com. And then your LinkedIn. You can find me just by putting my name in, obviously, in LinkedIn. But Actually, I'm going to put links to everything in here for you. Oh, so sure. That'd be great. here for everybody. Yeah. So yeah. I have your LinkedIn and your website because if we put your email, you'll get some spam bots. <laughs> <laughs> so it's for your protection. It's fair enough. But I have to say, as a digital uh, a guy, I'm unencumbered by spam. So that's well looked after. Okay, good. The book itself, if I could, yeah. for people who are interested in tracking it down, it's available in three formats. So the regular good old-fashioned paperback, and that you can pick that up from Amazon. And it's probably in 100 sites around the world, all the Amazon affiliates where you can get things like that. It's print-on-demand, so it's, oh, not cool. a, it's not a shelf product. So you got to wait a little bit. Yeah. The minute you place your order, a printer whips into action and produces your copy. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Very efficient because there's no pileup of unsold books anywhere, right? It's only just- Or only waste. Words. Yeah, it's no waste. It's also available in ebook format from Amazon and Kindle, Kindle and iTunes. Yeah. And I recorded the audiobook with the voice talents of some fantastic voices out there a year ago. And it's available on Audible. My online training course is on Udemy. So look for Digital Oil and Gas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Close to 750 students have taken the course now. Nice. Congratulations. That's yeah. cool. It's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of companies out there have said, you know, we're not going to be doing in-person training. So we got to go to online training. What can we do during this pandemic that lets people get up to speed with where they need to be for the future? So this getting digital awareness training on for oil and gas is a great way to do that. And that's on uh, Udemy. Look for Digital Oil and Gas. And of course, my podcast is on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all the usual places you go look. And it's also called Digital Oil and Gas. Yep. Put a link to all of that in the show notes. Fantastic. All right. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's events on deck. 
Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on, but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.